So use your imagination with me this morning. Uh, what if you discovered that someone down the line in your family tree, like your great-great-grandfather, had done something very shameful, maybe even illegal, something that, if it happened today, would be all over the news. And you found out, maybe through an ancestry website or through a phone call from a relative, you found out about what your great-great-grandfather did. How would you feel? You might feel uh, a tinge of shame and embarrassment. But then you'd probably say to yourself, you know what, I never even knew that person. And that happened a really long time ago. And, and sure, we're related, but even though we're related, what that person did doesn't stick to me. It has nothing to do with me at all. But now imagine that your doorbell rings, you open the door, and there's a very official-looking person from the government standing there informing you that you are responsible for the action of that blood relative, and you're going to have to bear some kind of penalty for what your great-great-grandfather did. How would you feel then? You'd probably fly off the handle. You probably wouldn't take that information very well. You'd be like any of us. You'd say, I cannot and I will not be held responsible for the actions of anybody who came before me, especially somebody who lived so many years ago. It shouldn't matter, and it doesn't matter that we share DNA or that we share a last name. I'm not the person who committed that crime, and therefore I will not bear the consequences for it. You can't hold that against me. And see, almost everybody would take your side in that argument. Everybody would be on your side because something like this, it feels like the most self-evident thing in the world to say that you are your own person, and therefore you are responsible only for your own actions. Isn't that right and obvious? And y'all, I want to tell you, it's something that actually the Bible affirms. The Bible's been telling this to us from the beginning. The early chapters of Romans give us a great insight into this, Romans 1, 2, and 3, that we all individually, we bear the penalty or the reward for our own behavior, for our own life and choices. Right? Of course. But y'all, the Bible also teaches us something on this very issue that's much more difficult to stomach. It's incredibly challenging to read and to understand, especially in our modern frame of mind. See, not every culture feels the same way that we do. We're modern Western American people. I'm my own person. It doesn't matter what anybody else who came before me says or does. Not every culture really operates that way, but certainly we do. And in that case, what we're going to see today in the Bible is difficult for us, but it's necessary. Necessary for us to understand not only why the world is the way it is, but also what God has determined to do about it. So y'all, we're, we're taking time this summer. We began it last week. We're looking at how Jesus stands at the center of this book. Not just the New Testament, beginning with Matthew, where Jesus shows up in the world, but the fact that Jesus has been in the world and over and, and, and in God's great plan for the world through the entire thing, through all of human history and all of Scripture, Jesus is the focal point and the fulfillment of all God's purposes in history. And so last week we began with a little overview. We looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, specifically the great themes of the creation and then the fall, sin, and also redemption. Well, today we're going to get a little more specific. 
we're going to look at the person of Adam, the first man God ever made. And y'all, Adam is really a fascinating person in the scripture because on one hand, Adam dies at the beginning of Genesis chapter 5 and leaves the narrative. And only just a few times throughout the entire Bible is, does his name reappear and is he spoken of? And yet Adam casts a very long and prominent shadow over the whole Bible and over the whole of human history. And it is a dark shadow that can only be conquered, only removed by the light of Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll see today as we begin in Genesis chapter 1. I mentioned this, we'll also spend some time in Romans chapter 5. So if you want to hold a finger there in both places, you're welcome to do it. But y'all, something we looked at last week, we're going to revisit it because it's very pertinent to to all of life and our understanding of the world. It's Genesis chapter 1, God's good creation of humankind. And so let's look at it again. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, this wonderful scripture. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we understand that Adam and Eve were the first created people. But you notice also here in Genesis 1, there's there's very general language being used. This This is God speaking of all men and women, not just the initial couple. This is God's design and God's purpose For everybody, including for you and me, God's desire was not just to make one man and one woman, but to fill the earth with them as those who bear his divine image and likeness. And so we see from the very beginning, this applies to all of us, how God endows people with dignity, with value, with purpose and privilege and pleasure. God's creation was good and it was to be delighted in by those whom he made to enjoy it. And see, it's not actually till Genesis 2 that we witness God making the first man, specifically, Genesis 2, 7, if you can flip there real quick, it says, then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. Now that's Adam, of course. And God made for Adam a garden, called Eden, to live in and to cultivate. All this is in chapter 2. And then God made from Adam a woman called Eve. Adam and Eve. Now, we'll see this more clearly uh, in in a moment, but I want to go ahead and point this out. That Adam and Eve were more than just the first two people on the earth. They are representative of all people. They're representatives of all of humanity, All of humanity, including those of us sitting in this room right now, for better or worse, all of us are united with and defined by our first parents, Adam and Eve. And there's good and bad wrapped up in that. The good side of that coin is that just like them, 
We all share in God's image. We all partake of God's goodness. We enjoy God's loving kindness. But then there's another side of that coin that comes in Genesis chapter 3. And if you want to flip to Genesis 3, we also looked at this last week where everything goes so terribly wrong. We call it the fall of man. God had given everything to Adam and Eve, everything, for their enjoyment, for their delight. They experienced perfect, unbroken communion with God. They had everything they could possibly ask for. There was only one prohibition, only one rule. God said, don't eat from the tree in the center of the garden. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The one thing they weren't allowed to do. Well, in enters Satan, of course, and he pounces on that opportunity. Satan comes in to cast doubt on God's word and also on God's character. He tells them that God didn't really love them. God's holding out on them. God doesn't want them to have everything he has. And Adam and Eve find that very appealing. They find the tree, they take of it, and they eat. And you notice this immediately. Adam and Eve sink into guilt and shame and alienation. It happens immediately that their eyes are open, but not in a good way. They begin to hide from one another. They hide from God, and God enters in then and pronounces curses upon them, even a curse on the creation itself. And so if you see this with me, and this is Genesis 3, 17, speaking to Adam specifically, this is what God says. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, We might call this the curse of sin, the, the curse that comes as a result of Adam's sin. And y'all, this curse is worse than we thought. On one hand, we see Adam's sin brings about physical death, a returning to the dust, not God's original purpose and creation. But there's also a much worse kind of death. There's a kind of spiritual death that occurs here. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They are alienated from their communion that they enjoyed with God. There's something now irreparably broken because of sin. And we see it from the very beginning of all things. Now, we ask the question, it's a good question, okay, what does that have to do with us? We, we, we read the narrative, and certainly we see patterns, and we, we, we make sense of the kind of the building blocks of, of how we understand the world, why it's here, and, and you know, why it is the way it is. But what does that have to do with me? So many years later, halfway across the world. Well, unfortunately, the answer is it has everything to do with us, what we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And to get a better framework for that, we need to look at Romans chapter 5. So if you had your finger there, or if you're a quick scroller on your phone, look with me at Romans 5. And y'all, I want to encourage us up front. Uh, This is a good news sermon. It's a very good news sermon. But the good news we're going to see today, it it corresponds with the bad news. Uh, The good news does not exist on its own in a vacuum. It comes in to conquer and overwhelm the bad. And so the bad is necessary for us to understand Because only then do we understand how good the good news really is. And Romans 5 gives us an an incredible picture of this. Verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes these words. 
Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Uh, Y'all, each of these sentences deserves its own sermon. So you'll forgive me. We can only touch on the major points here in this time that we have. But y'all, consider now what Paul is saying. Through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world. It wasn't just Adam's problem. Sin entered the world and death through sin. Sin came through Adam and death came through his sin. And of course, the curse doesn't end with Adam. Death spread to all men, Paul tells us, because all sinned. And so we can conclude just based on that one verse, all people are sinners, all of us, and all are under the curse of death, just like our first parent, Adam. And so in one sense, we can affirm something, and I don't think it'd be terribly controversial for us to look at something like this and say, we are all like Adam aren't we? We're like Adam. We're all made in God's image with great dignity and delight and purpose and privilege, but we've also all chosen sin. We've all gone our own way. We've all rebelled against God, just like Adam did. We're like him. But y'all, this scripture is also saying more than that, and you've probably already caught on. We're not just like Adam. We are in Adam. We're in Adam. And the the, the rest of the scripture helps us to understand the difference. See, Paul goes on to say, we just read it, even before the law came in, that is the the Ten Commandments, okay, which didn't come in until Exodus, right, a great many years later, under the leadership of Moses, until the law came in, Paul says, sin and death still reigned in the world, even over those who did not sin in the way that Adam did. That means even for people who didn't directly defy a specific command of God as Adam did, even then, those people were still under the curse of sin and death. It reigned, it had power over them. And so what Paul is communicating here is that this this curse of sin and death was ushered in by one man, and yet it spread to all men. Everyone who came after him, Because all sinned. And y'all, this is honestly where it gets a little sticky. All sinned, Paul says. Now, is Paul saying that all people die because all people choose sin? That we ourselves are culpable, accountable for our own sinful choices? Or is Paul saying that all people die because we share in Adam's sin? Which is it? Well, the answer is yes. Okay? It's a both-and situation. And I mentioned this a minute ago. It's a clear biblical teaching. Go back to Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's a clear biblical teaching that every single person is personally, individually accountable for our own sin. That's the only way for God to be just, and he is. 
And yet we still have to reckon with a deeper reality that's clearly at work both in the world and in ourselves, and it's certainly uh, proclaimed in the Scripture. If we ask the question, okay, why is the world so corrupt? Why is it that we're all destined to die? That every child born is now on the clock from day one, even if that child hasn't committed any sin yet, he or she will surely die one day. Okay, why is it that we are inclined to sin from the earliest age? Nobody ever taught you how to sin. They didn't have to. Me either. Why is it that the world and you and me are the way that we are? And the answer is, of course, that we are in Adam. We're not just like him. We're in him. We're united with Adam. We share his nature and we bear the awful consequences of his first sin. It's deeper than just likeness. It's unity. The old Puritans used to say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now, this is the point where we might be tempted to stand up and, and shake our fist at this to say, no, no. That's not how life works. I wasn't there when Adam sinned. I didn't make that choice. He did. Therefore, I am not and cannot be accountable for that. It's unfair and perhaps even unjust for God to impute guilt and condemnation to me and to you for something we had nothing to do with. Adam did that. Eve did that. Not me. And again, that's self-evident to us. That makes sense. How could we be under the curse of Adam, uh, united with him in nature and condemnation if we weren't there? Well, I'm going to let Paul speak to this in Romans 5 primarily. I just, let me just add one comment before we get there, though. For one thing, we need to stand on the truth that God is not in any way unjust, never once and never to come. He is perfectly just all the time. It's part of his essential nature. He doesn't act unjustly. Okay. But when we speak of Adam as the representative man, y'all, part of what that means is Adam simply did what every human being would have done in the same situation. And we need to be very clear on this. There is not a single person walking the earth today, not one, who would have succeeded where Adam failed. Adam is the representative man because Adam is us and we are him. Okay, so, so Douglas Moo, who's one of the great commentators in the book of Romans, makes this, this statement. He says, now think of these, these two seemingly competing ideas. All people die because all sin. Personal responsibility. All people die because of Adam's sin. Representation. And Moo says, both are true without conflict because the sin of Adam is the sin of all. And so if you, if just, if you, feel like putting your own name in the blank there and seeing how you might stack up. If you want to say, instead of Adam and Eve, let's put Kyle and Jennifer, let's put the pastor and his wife in the garden, and maybe things would have turned out better. Sorry, baby. She's great. She's great. But y'all, the representative couple, they are us and we are them. Every single person would have done the same thing. That's the point. And so we can't pretend that somehow Adam is culpable and we're not 
Y'all, what Adam did, directly disobeying, defying God's command, choosing himself over God, guess what? I do that every day. Every day. I would have fared no better. None of us would. He's our representative because he is us and we are him. And so that's bad news, right? We're under sin's curse. We are in Adam. What hope do we have now? Remember the last thing Paul said about Adam, what we just read? That Adam was a type of him who was to come. Capital H, him. Adam was a type or a prefiguring of Jesus. That's that's an awfully big statement to make. Adam is a prefiguring of Jesus. Okay, well, how can that be so? Well, now look with me at Romans 5, 15. Because the good news is ushered in. Verse 15 says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. There is in Adam a curse that through this one man's transgression, sin and death spread to all. And yet there is in Jesus Christ a free gift that through one man's righteousness, grace and life came to all. And so Paul begins by telling us, Adam points us to Jesus. Initially, he does it by way of contrast and showing us how different they are. The free gift, Paul says, is not like the transgression. Adam's action ushered in death. Jesus' action on the cross ushers in life. And y'all, that of course, we preach that every week. That may seem so obvious, so common sense to us. But I want you to consider just how radical this grace of God really is. Look with me again at verse 16, what we just read, right in the middle of it. Verse 16 again, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now think about the logic of this. It's really, it's it's incredible. If the judgment for one sin, Adam's sin, was condemnation for the world, how much more judgment should come from a thousand sins or a million or a trillion sins? How much more judgment should I personally experience for the great many sins that I've committed in my life? Too many for me even to count. 
And yet God has responded to the many sins with the free gift of his son. Great sin has been met with a greater grace. That's why Paul uses over and again this phrase, much more. All throughout Romans 5, even in the verses we didn't read, verses 1 through 11, Paul continually uses this phrase, much more, far more, much greater. The greater grace which has resulted in justification for us, meaning to those who have received the abundance of the grace of Jesus Christ. We now stand before God righteous and just, knowing full well that we aren't, knowing full well that the mountain of sin against me is insurmountable, except that God has done something to conquer it. God has done something to justify us. It's the free gift of Jesus Christ. We are no longer condemned by our sins. We are standing in the righteousness of his light. We are now defined by Jesus' life, no longer by Adam's sin, no longer by our own, but we stand on Christ. And so, y'all, in Romans 5, there's this moment, I hope for us all, that there's this clarity and revelation that's meant to come to our minds and our hearts as we read this, because it may be that we come to this idea of, of being united with Adam, and everything in us pushes back. Everything in us wants to stand up against this concept of union with our first parent. I'm defined only by what I do, and that's the way it must be. I don't like the idea that someone else's action could in any way define me or be accounted to me. Well, think about, though, what we're being told God has done through Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true that Adam's sin has been our representative and defining reality. We are under the curse of sin and death. We share in his nature, and therefore we will walk out its path. That may not seem fair to us. We may not like that idea, but how has God chosen to save us? By one man's act of righteousness accounted to us. We are saved by someone else's work being given to us that we might receive it and stand upon it. We come face to face with the gospel, the good news of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. That He has given the righteousness of the Son now to us in spite of what we've done over and above what Adam ever did. It's the representative act that we now share in forever. We can't have one without the other. If I don't like what Adam did, I'm going to struggle with what Christ did. And so how has God accomplished this? Look at verse 18 now. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made or reckoned sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Y'all, the gospel, what makes the gospel good news 
is that you and I now have a new representative. The one man, Jesus Christ, who has acted on our behalf. So whereas Adam's act of unrighteousness brought condemnation and death, Jesus' one act of righteousness brings justification of life. That is the cross. Adam's disobedience now constitutes us all as sinners, but Jesus' obedience going to the cross in our place. He now constitutes us as righteous, both today and tomorrow and forevermore, by faith in him. A representative act that we need only receive to cancel out the long and dark shadow of Adam and to bring us into the light. Y'all, we're taking this summer, right? We're walking through Old Testament and New, trying to show in, in certain ways how this great big story all fits together, and specifically how all things point to Jesus and how all things are fulfilled in him. And y'all, the shoe certainly fits in this case. This whole story, the whole story of human history is in view right here in Romans 5, that all people... All people throughout all history descended from Adam are therefore in Adam, united with him. The proof is all around us and the proof is inside of us. But by God's grace, we may be born again. John chapter 1, we are born not of the flesh, not of any human will, but we are born of God, born from above. And because there is a new birth, a new life granted to us in Christ, we may experience now justification rather than condemnation, life rather than death, to those who are in Christ, united with him by faith. We now share in his life, no longer in Adam's curse. There's no better news than this. And so, y'all, as we, as we close here, I want to... I follow a little train of thought. As this has been on my mind all week. Forgive me if, I'm, if this is a rabbit trail. I think it's, I hope it's helpful. What did God say to Adam in the Garden of Eden? Essentially, what, did God, what was God's message to Adam concerning the tree of life, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden? God says to Adam, if you disobey me, you will surely die. And we know how it turned out. Well, Adam is a type of Christ who was to come. So think with me, now I'm, this is not exact language, but think with me what the God the Father says to his own son as his son comes to earth in, as a human being to be one of us. What does God the Father say to his son? He says, obey me, Jesus, and you will surely die. To Adam, God says, disobey me and you will surely die. God says to his son, obey me, Jesus, and you will surely die. Which makes no sense, right? Unless we understand the ravages of sin and the power of grace. How in the world did God intend to solve the problem of the curse of sin and death? He couldn't simply wink at it. How unjust would God be simply to sweep all of our problems under the rug? It's impossible. A just God must punish sin. And so what did God do in order to conquer sin? He did it by taking the condemnation of us all upon himself, upon his own shoulders, into his own heart. 
the only way for God to forgive a world of sinners was to punish sin in a way that didn't destroy those who committed it. And so he put the sin of us all upon his son. Obey me, Jesus, and you will go to the cross. You will die. And Jesus gladly obeyed God all the way to the cross. He laid down his own life for us so that we may be made alive in him. Adam's disobedience, the condemnation of his sin, which has now spread to all men, as bad as it is, and it is, much more has the grace of the free gift and the righteousness of Jesus Christ abounded. God's great goal for us is not to get us back to the Garden of Eden. I hope you know that. There is a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus Christ sits on the throne in the center. There is a greater destiny awaiting us, having sinned and been redeemed, than if we were still in the Garden of Eden. Much more has God's grace abounded to those who receive it. And that's how we finish. Remember what Paul has told us. If death reigned through Adam, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, help us this morning to take in this very deep and difficult teaching. What I know in my own heart, I don't like. Um, that I'm in Adam somehow. And that I am in need of grace um, more deeply than I would have ever guessed. Um, Father, I pray that you would, would remove from our hearts any inclination that we have to think better of ourselves than we should. To think that we would have fared better in the garden than Adam and Eve would have. To think, Lord, that somehow we could, have, we could have really made it on our own if just given the opportunity. Now, we have all sinned in Adam, but just fine on our own. And so, Father, I pray that just protect us from any illusion that, uh, that we're exempt from this or that we're above this. Father, we, we are in great need. And so help us, Lord, if we see that great need, that we see the good news and how great the, the grace of Jesus really is. That for a world of sinners, that for all of us, Lord, so deeply buried underneath a mountain of the sin that we freely chose, unable to, to dig our way out, unable to save ourselves, you sent your Son to cover the many transgressions not with judgment, but with justifying grace. And so, Father, help us this morning just to, to marvel at how greatly you've loved us.
at how, Lord, you, from the very beginning, Lord, you refused to let sin and death have the last word. Father, the last word belongs to Jesus Christ, who is redeeming us even now and who will redeem us once and for all, who has a future for us so far superior to the Garden of Eden that there will be no comparison because we have been redeemed by His blood, His grace. Father, let us, I pray, live with, a, with a, just a consciousness of our own nature that without Jesus entering in, we, we are forever in Adam. But now we may be declared as in Christ. We are in Christ by faith. And we really are new. We're really new. So Lord, let us, I pray, believe it. Um, and let us now abide by it. As we have received Christ, may we also walk in him and live as people who are new. A new creation, a new self. Not what we were, but that which pleases and reflects you. Lord, thank you for the privilege of receiving this free gift. Lord, may, may we live um, as those who are no longer uh, in our first parent, but we are now in the Savior who extinguished by his light the great shadow once over us. We love you and we thank you in the awesome name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.